Kyle's internal monologue. In this episode, we're going to be covering the Babylon 5 Season 2 episode, Comes the Inquisitor. This is the penultimate episode of the season. Uh, next time, we're going to be covering the uh, season finale. So uh, we're getting into the really good stuff. I mean, last episode was my favorite episode of all time. In this episode is a damn good episode, uh, pretty much consistently with a couple of exceptions. Every episode is going to be top tier great, um, and uh, this is this is the Babylon Five that I love. This is the Babylon Five that is really, really good, and and is the pretty much bog standard uh that you will have for the rest of the series this is just good quality good television good drama character work good everything um this is this is amazing stuff comes the inquisitor itself uh has an a plot an a plot and a b plot that coexist together and eat each other hey look at that an a plot b plot that actually serves a purpose uh in the fact that we have several themes running through this episode and one of them is what are you willing to sacrifice basically it is um it's about the challenge the the challenge of being a leader in a horrible horrible situation um both sheridan delin and jakar are both questioned by this in jakar's side we have uh, the Narn who, uh, you know, they want to talk to their families. They, they, they haven't, the, no communication's gone through. And Jakar is trying to set up this, uh, this uh, legal trade of weapons to arm the resistance. And they're like, how are we supposed to trust that you can get weapons through if you can't get simple communication through? And it's a very simple question, but it has a lot of meaning because it makes perfect sense. Um, he, he, and he has to uh, w willingly suck up his pride and uh, and do this in order to earn back the trust of the people that he once had all the trust of. Uh, he, he, it shows his sacrifice of willing to do the right thing. Meanwhile, you have Delenn, who's being interrogated by the Inquisitor Sebastian, uh, and... She is being questioned about uh, whether she truly has a destiny. It, it, it is a uh, commentary on Chosen One narratives and the idea that there is such a thing as destiny. Uh, and uh, how much is she willing to sacrifice? And we come to find out she's more than willing to sacrifice her own life. And, the, the you know, the being the right person at the right place at the right time. Uh, we 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 are who we are when we are alone in the dark, um, and then uh, Sheridan is not only questioned by the Inquisitor of uh, are, you, are you you a chosen one, but also your soldier. How much are you willing to sacrifice for this victory? Uh, it, 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 these are themes and ideas that are running through both plots that service the main idea. Uh, and that is, as said, being the right person at the right place at the right time. Uh, I'll talk about Jakar's side because I have less to say about it real quick. Um, the, the scene between him and Garibaldi, genius. 
um, that is Garib that shows Garibaldi and Jakar's respective personalities in a brilliant way and how they bounce off each other perfectly. Garibaldi never enters a situation unless he knows how it's going to end. But he always leaves room for people to disappoint him. And when he, when he confronts Jakar, he's like, you can't be, you know, shipping weapons through Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is a strictly neutral station. We cannot have this. And Jakar is forced to uh, acquiesce to Garibaldi and stop these shipments because even though it's the right thing to do because he, he, he's fighting against his, his oppressors now, Garibaldi has a job to do. Garibaldi's his friend, and he understands, and he doesn't want to violate that trust, that inherent trust that has been built upon them for these years now. And it's all about, yeah, life is shit, but I have a job to do, and I'm, I may not like it, but I gotta do it. And at the end, when he doesn't lie to him, when, he, when, when Jakar goes, okay, I won't do the shipment anymore, that's when Garibaldi gives him the data crystal and says, I got a contact, he'll help you with the weapons. Because Garibaldi feels for Jakar. He perfectly understands the situation he's in. But he's got a job to do. And so he's going to do that job. But he's also going to help his friend as long as he was truthful to him and was more than willing to let him do his job. That is wonderful character writing. Then uh, I, I, I talked about the entire uh, uh, Narn situation of uh, how can we trust that you can get weapons through if you can't even get simple communication through. And so Jakar has to do this in order to, uh, uh, e e you know, in order to earn back the trust of the Narn. And through that, we get the entire uh, Army of Light situation of the this is where you start playing politics the army of light for the first time really is really starting to become a political force in order to gain allies that against the shadows they have to be more than willing to do uh do anything to uh earn these allies and so they have a vested interest in keeping Jakar in charge of the Narns here. Jakar is a known quantity. They can deal with him. They can negotiate with him. If he is eliminated and another another Narn steps through, that's a that's a wild card. You don't know what they're gonna do, how they're gonna act. Uh, they could be completely against the Army of Light. Could they could be pro Shadow? You just don't know within that situation. So the Army of Light has an absolute vested interest in keeping Jakar where he's at. So they use the Rangers to get, get the communications through. Yes, it's a risky business, and you're officially aligning the Rangers uh, in, in a pro-Narn situation, which can look bad to the Centauri, uh, but it also can alert the shadows. It's a risky maneuver. It's a risky position to be in, but it's the right thing to do, not only morally, but also because they can't risk Jakar leaving. They can't. They need him. 
and not for any other reason except for the fact that he has if he earns the respect of the Narn, the Narn will follow him. Because that's how the Narn work, you know, that you, you demonstrate your superiority and they will follow you. Uh, and you, you demonstrated with something physical, uh, as we saw way back when Jakar got into that, that fight and he refused, and even when he got hit by the poison blade, he refused to fall down because if he showed any sign of weakness, uh, the Narns would be less inclined to follow him. And here we, we see that, uh, but in a less violent way. And so they, they help Jakar and thus have control of the Narn. This is the Army of Light playing politics. Uh, it also has the added advantage of being just the correct thing to do on a moral standpoint, but it is ultimately a political action, a political maneuver, and a political decision. You know, they have a vested interest in where Jakar is and how he controls the Narn. Um, the, in the final thing I want to talk about in regards to the Jakar bit uh is that scene between him and veer you know what i'm talking about it's that scene in the elevator it, it just sticks in my mind every time just veer doesn't know what to say he he's silent when he sees that jakar's in the elevator and he doesn't know what to say and you see that look on his face and it's it's the look of someone who's feeling nothing but guilt and he doesn't know how to alleviate the situation alleviate his guilt to apologize how can you and he's struggling to find the words and then he's like i tried to tell them but they didn't listen they never do i'm sorry and Jakar just stares at him. And then he pulls the knife, cuts his hand, and that's the blood drip. And for each drop that hits the ground, he goes dead, 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 dead. Can you apologize to them? And Veer's voice cracks and goes, I can't. And Jakar's reply, and I cannot forgive. Because at the end of the day, there was nothing Veer could say. Absolutely nothing. We know he feels bad. We know that he disagrees with the decision to bombard Narn and to enslave the race again. But right now, where they're at, Jakar is in mourning. Mourning and anger coalescing. He is there fighting the fight that he has fought since he was a kid to free the Narns from the Centauri. And in that comes the idea that the Centauri are wrong no matter what. The Narn are always right no matter what. There's It's, it's tribal mentality. We've talked about this in regards to the Narn and the Centauri, how our side is righteous, their side is evil, vice versa. Um, it, and even though he respects Veer, and he knows Veer is different than the other Centauri, he still cannot forgive Veer for sitting there, because Veer took action, yes, 
but he didn't take enough action, at least in Jakar's viewpoint. There was nothing that could be said between either one of them that would have ended in a amicable way in that elevator. It's a chilling scene because you see both of them emotional and attempting to convey their thoughts. Uh, you know, Veer's guilt, uh, his sadness, his empathy, and Jakar, his anger and his sadness and everything just coalescing into dead, dead, dead. What a powerful scene. Now I'm going to get into the Sebastian part of the episode. Um, so Sebastian is fascinating in the fact that we he's pretty much not what you expect. When, you, when you're told at the beginning of the episode before the, the title sequence that, um, you know, the Inquisitor will come and visit you to learn and if you survive, you know, the, the big stinger, you're expecting another Vorlon or something like that, something of this all-powerful race uh, these mysterious and, uh, and sort of manipulative people. And then the Inquisitor shows up. The Inquisitor, Sebastian. And the way he's introduced, that, that beautiful repetition, the tap, 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 the game as he's walking and then he meets Sheridan, and he's not at all what we expect. First, he's human. He's dressed in old-style clothes, with a top hat. He looks completely out of place. He looks prim and proper, and everything is in the right spot. You know, he's very gentlemanly, uh, and he has a job to do, and he seems ultra-focused on that. And that, that all sense of the motion for what we should be thinking. He is the Inquisitor. He brings order. This is what the Vorlons are all about. Uh, he is prim and he's proper. He does what he is told. And the, the, the tap, tap, tap of the cane inherently tells us that, you know, it's left, right, left, right. It's all perfectly timed. He comes in. He establishes order. He brings order to chaos. It, repetition breeds compliance and uh, familiarity. And he looks down upon Babylon 5 and he sees chaos and immorality. And he's judging everyone. Just like he judges Delenn. He is ultra-focused on establishing a narrative. This is textbook interrogation. When you interrogate someone, you establish a narrative. That says, it, it, think of it, it, think of interrogation like a math equation, A plus B equals C. So you input that the truth plus fact, because the truth and fact are not always the same, equal your narrative. So his narrative is, you are not chosen. That you are not special. You are not important. You are nothing. To quote him, you're their nail that is to be hammered down. Bang, bang, bang. And that's what he sees Delenn as. And that's his narrative he sets up. It's even, it's even this, you know, shown with the handcuffs. He gives her the handcuffs and he's like, you will put them on. 
and this will start the interrogation. You are it's basically a voluntary thing. She is free to take the handcuffs off at any point in time. But if she does, that proves that he is right. It makes sure his narrative is correct. So if she wants to prove that she's special, she has to prove that his narrative is wrong. Which means she has to endure all the pain, all the torture, everything. It's completely voluntary, but yet it's not at the same time. So Vorlon. It's perfectly Vorlon mentality of, you will do as you are told, and if you don't, here's a gun in your face. It's peace, the barrel of a gun. The way Wayne Alexander plays Sebastian is so perfect and so wonderful. He's not even English, but he puts on this wonderful English accent because he is uh, a character from the, the 19th century. And I will talk about that uh, once that becomes relevant to the entire situation. Uh, what he is trying to do is break down Delenn's optimism. And, you know, you know, we, we are basically he's trying to he's trying to establish that in his narrative, she's a cog in the machine. She's not special. She is not chosen because that's what he believed. And she comes back to him. We all have a destiny. Uh, and she even later in the episode in a retort to him, uh, you know, begging for Sheridan's life says, you know, uh, if I die, another one will take my place. And another, and another. Basically, we are told we are nothing. But in actual fact, we are all born to do something. We all have a greater purpose, whether we know it or not. Delin's optimism does not break. As she says to Sebastian himself, uh... You know, you have aspired to dreams and were disappointed. Uh, she destroys his narrative with his, with her optimism. And Sheridan's willingness to lay down his life for her. And then Delin's willingness to lay down, his, uh, uh, lay down her life for him is, you know, self-sacrifice and mutual admiration. And that is when... His narrative changes. As he puts it, I was Diogenes in his lamp, looking for the uh, the right person, willing to die for all the wrong reasons. We are who we are when we are alone in the dark. And this is from the very moment he starts interrogating Delenn. That is the thing he's asking. Who are you? Her response, I'm Delenn. No. Y who are you? Uh, you know, I'm the ambassador to uh, uh, Membar. No. Who are you? And on and on and on. Does she have anything that is not, you know, uh, uh, stamped, delineated, approved, sanctioned by others? And we fully demonstrate who we are as people, fundamentally, when we are in the dark, when we are alone when our baser instincts come out. Because in that one moment, you have a choice. You know, imagine someone who only does good for publicity. Um, 
I you can I'm sure you can think of about a, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people who do that. There are lots of people in this world that only do good things for publicity to make their image look better. And then imagine that they were in a room where someone was dying, and they were the only ones could save them, but no one else was around. It's just them and the person that was dying. Do you think that they would be more than willing to give up their life to save the other person? Knowing that their sacrifice would never be recorded? No. Because their sacrifice, their goodness, is a lie. That who you are, their, their identity, is not true. It's false. It's fake. It's a lie. But if you're willing to give your life knowing that you will be forgotten, that you will never be remembered as the one who was the hero. That is when you know you are chosen. That's when, that's when you know that you are a good person. That's when you know who you are. And that's what Delenn and Sheridan prove to Sebastian. And his entire narrative breaks when they're willing to do that. He even mentions, you know, be a good man, body, conform. Because he is preaching the Vorlon mentality, basically, in his own narrative. Conformity, you know, uh, willingness to be obedient. And that is broken by Delenn and Sheridan, both willing to sacrifice their lives for each other. And, and that is when we get to the ending. And who Sebastian really is becomes relevant. At the end of the episode, we find out that Sebastian is, in actual fact, Jack the Ripper. And now, I've seen people go, this is like a weird, trippy sci-fi angle. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, and it's kind of stupid. No, it fits perfectly. It could. It could end up like some really cheap, cheesy sci-fi idea. It doesn't work, but it ties perfectly into the thematics of the episode and the symbology of the episode and makes the entire episode work on a fundamental level because his entire narrative was Vorlon mentality. Be obedient. Conform. You are not special. You are the nail to be hammered down. And this was taught to him because he had the audacity to believe he was special. He saw chaos and immorality. So he attempted to establish order. And he attempted to establish order through the wrong way. Believing he was the divine messenger. Believing he was chosen. But as the Vorlons taught him, he is not special. You're just a cog in the machine for us to crank and crank and crank until you die. It brings order to chaos. To be one among many. The assembly line. You know, one one person wraps the thing, the other person ties the bow, etc. On and on and on. It, it's the assembly line concept. You each have a job to do with. You do that job. You do that job well. But it doesn't mean you're special. Remove that cog. One cog in the assembly line. And you may throw off... The, the 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 pace a little, but the assembly line continues on without you. 
And that's the way the Vorlons see the world. That's the way Sebastian was taught to see the world. Because as Jack the Ripper, he lashed out at chaos. And think about this. The Vorlons are all about order. So it's a natural fact that their worst enemy is chaos. And so they looked at Sebastian. And they said he is perfect for our machine, basically. He's the perfect cog. And so they ground him down. And my question is to you, do you still trust the Vorlon? Regardless of if you've ever watched the rest of the series and where it's going, do you truly trust the Vorlon after this? Knowing that they have Jack the Ripper in their services, they use him to interrogate and beat the living crap out of people to do as they are told. Does that sound like a good person to you? Does that sound like a good race? Does that sound anything like the, the mysterious, but ultimately, uh, you know, good, the good-sided, uh, non-judgmental uh, race that we have been seeing so far? Or does it strike you as the same race that when asked by Sinclair of uh you know uh, about about the non-instant harmony that their their time has come we should let them pass this is the ultimate in showing that the vorlons may not be trustworthy because if you don't obey they will get rid of you once again it's peace bro of a gun you will obey because we tell you to obey. You will do as you were told. And never question it. Such a wonderful episode. So many themes and ideas running through it. The A plot, B plot actually coalesce into one cohesive story. They may be, in fact, two separate narratives, but they coalesce into telling one concept, one idea. And Sebastian turning out to be Jack the Ripper actually aids in the symbolism of the entire episode. It's beautiful. It's well done. And every actor in this episode should be given props, most especially Wayne Alexander, for the way he portrays Sebastian slash Jack the Ripper. I shall see you next time for the end of Season 2. Till then, bye! <laughs>